Welcome back to the Growth Innovators Podcast. The modern financial industry has seen huge advancements in leveraging data to inform investment strategies to maximize results. In this conversation, Manifold partner John Sfiokla sits down with Paul Fahey, Senior Vice President at Northern Trust and Head of Investment Data Science. And they discuss the impact of data on investment decision-making and how today's financial firms are leveraging new technology to improve their decision-making and maximize their returns. It's an interesting conversation. I think you get a lot out of it. And with that, let's go to John and Paul. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our Data and Decisioning and Financial Services. I'm delighted to be able to welcome a dear friend of mine, Paul Fahey. And Paul and I have known each other for a long time. And if you got to know Paul the way I have, you find not only that he's an amazing leader and really one of the premier institutions in the world, Northern Trust, and I think his current role is he's head of investment data science, but he's really one of the go-to people inside Northern Trust for new and interesting things, has unbelievable credibility and uh, capability within that organization. And I think um, we're gonna have an interesting conversation about the role of um, bank like a Northern Trust, a custody bank, in the context of fintech decision-making and the evolution of financial services. And if that's not enough, Paul's also an incredible reader, curious mind. And I was just asking him how he got into banking. And he said that it came through a relationship, as he said, as often is the case, through love and decided to stay in the U.S. instead of going to back to Ireland to get more education and then started with State Street and then moved over to Northern Trust. And if we have time also, we're talking about the evolution of technology. Paul has been deeply involved in all kinds of new technology as it pertains to hearing and other, because one of his children who is now 14 was born completely deaf and is doing a fantastic job. So really, we will be talking about decision-making in the context of new data. But I think Paul's understanding of this about how technology can make life better is actually deep and broad, although knowing Paul, he'll stay very focused on the, the business issue because he's that kind of, we're in a serious setting, he's that kind of serious guy, and it's too early in the morning to have a pint together. So welcome, Paul. It's great to have you here. Thank you very much, John. I really appreciated the uh, invitation and those kind words as an introduction. Thank you. Well, our pleasure. So let me give you an idea of where we're going to head when we're already together. We're going to start with the uh, introduction. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the industry trends, which are fantastic if you know what's happening in fintech and technology and financial services in general, everything from cryptocurrency decisioning to mobile apps and so forth. And then we're going to talk a little bit about data science and how you're using it within your organization and what Paul is seeing in terms of where power and influence and Decisioning is really moving in financial services. And then we're going to talk a little bit about our next speaker, Ross Mayfield. And I'll also be giving you the rest of the story uh, about the little bit from the uh, Code of Hammurabi. Just a reminder of your sponsor here. I'm a partner here at Manifold. We're a growth-oriented company, have three big hunks. We have uh, consulting, which I'm a deep part of. We also have uh, an incubator, accelerator, and venture, because we really think that this combination is where the future is. You're going to have to reinvent your business while running your business. And as the phrase goes, work on it and in it. And we think that the different forms, investing, building, and advising is the full panoply of stuff you need to grow a business. So, and it's fun. It's just what, what interesting people. Um, worked with a bunch of large and small companies. So big companies trying to grow, little companies trying to scale. Think of it that way. I want to return to our ever-present philosophical beginning here because I think it's important for all executives 
to remember where we are in the arc of capitalism. I think we're right at the point where we're starting to see the deep implications of computability. And what I mean by computability, and this is bigger than automation, and this is bigger than digitization, and it's bigger than AI. Those are all parts of this. But the general trend is that we're having higher and higher levels of knowledge of phenomenons of interest, whether it's things like the mRNA vaccine for COVID or self-driving car. So that knowledge keeps going up. And then digitization of that, that our, our ability to track and monitor and to, to uh, sense whether it's from satellites or from cell phones or from whatever is going up. Those two things together make for computability. And when something is compute and it's just like automation, but better. So you automate something in the industrial age and in, in the digital age, we're computing. When we compute, we automate and we have a symbolic description of something. So why does that matter? Well, Facebook's business is built on basically having a, a mathematical model of your social cognition and the, the social cognition of people in your network. And that's how their, their product is so powerful, right? Because they are computing your cognition. And that is uh, a very powerful thing. That's just one example. You can look at self-driving cars. You can look at the way Elon Musk 3D prints the Draco, the super Draco engines on his capsule. These are all examples of digitization. And the thing is that if somebody else is computing something and you're competing in a, a traditional way, you're going to lose. And you're going to lose because you have worse economics, worse quality, and worse scalability. Anyway. Yes, we're a powerhouse in what we do as a custodial bank. And beyond all of the, the components that make up our services to really two client bases, what we call asset allocators, those with the capital looking to. Uh, We're going to explore that in the context of uh, decision making. And the leaders are always surfing that new edge of computability and what it means for competition. And we have articles on that and things like that if you're interested. All right. I'm now going to turn it over to Paul to give us an idea of Northern Trust. Uh, for those of you who are not from the Chicago area you, or not in banking, you may not know Northern Trust but it is a powerhouse platform that is an essential part of, of our financial global financial system and has been around uh, for a long time and plays a very, very important role. So Paul, over to you. Yeah, I don't want to spend a lot of time, John, on this, but just to set a little bit of the context as to why I think we're in a position to be influential here, preserve or, or grow it. Um, things like pension funds, endowments, foundations, and, uh, and so on. And then the asset managers, those who take that capital and on behalf of those allocators grow and, and maintain those assets. We work across various aspects of the financial services. So at its, I guess, most basic level, those prices of mutual funds that you see in the, the newspaper or on a screen these days, we're responsible for putting uh, a large portion of those in the paper. And then we do everything in the, the marketplace to make sure the the flow of data flows the way it's supposed to. And then at a very simple level, from an accounting standpoint, making sure everything is where it's supposed to be, uh, when it's supposed to be there. Um, why I think it's important here is we have, depending on who's counting, somewhere between 5 and 7% of the world's assets flowing through our systems. Wow. And for those of you who are not... How big a number is that? Five to seven percent of the world's assets. Well, if you look there, that second number in that yes. ten point six trillion. Yes. That's about that five percent number. Gotcha. Um, which for, for the statisticians amongst us, that's a pretty good sample set. Yeah. Well, the what GDP of the world's about sixty something, and whatever in the U.S. is like 20, 18, 20, something like that. Yep. Amazing. Yeah. 
and they are global assets, not not U.S. Uh, yes. Despite our, our retaining our home here in Chicago, those uh, are offices across the globe and, and clients across the globe. And really, for us, it's you see those numbers there that show up in, in financial statements and disclosures, uh, and that's probably uh, as far into the detail on that I'd, I'd like to go. But I do think the this idea of us having such a large percentage of global assets mm-hmm. uh, in and of themselves and all that we can do for our clients, uh, that's one thing. But then to be able to infer from that data and, and really look at where the markets are going and what we need to be doing to uh, support that. As I said, I think that 5% sample is a, is a pretty good one to work from. Amazing. Yeah, I, look, this one here is at the crossroads. So I suppose a, a little bit of a, a history lesson and, and then what's, how that sets the stage for, for how we move forward. I think as a, an industry, going back the last 40, 50 years, the growth of pension assets and ERISA and, and the uh, Employee Securities Act, We've seen a buildup of capabilities in a siloed way. We've built up capabilities that support the trade of equities, of fixed income, derivatives, mm-hmm. and they've all been built up in their own silos. And in addition to the technology that's grown up, we've attached operational stacks to manage that individual technology. So that was all fine and well, and, and the reason why we did it when we did it all made sense. The problem we have now is this notion of interconnectedness or interoperability across both the technologies and the multi-strategies of the investors looking to be both in fixed income, in equity, in derivatives, and anything else, and being able to pull all that together and report out is limited by how we built these things historically. And now mm-hmm. you need more of that need for communication and collaboration across investment teams. Uh, which means the technologies need to be able to speak to each other, which means the operational teams need to be able to support multiple technologies. And all of this is coming at a time where we're seeing increased pressures on the participants, whether the asset allocators, the asset owner, the asset mm-hmm. manager, and firms like ourselves that are built to uh, support them. Um, you know, the beauty of the cost pressures is they will say necessity is the mother of invention. Mm-hmm. That is driving people to to do things that they probably never considered before. As we look at the idea of the cost of technology, you know that I suppose it's becoming an old adage now. But the idea that things are moving faster today than they ever have before, yes. and they'll never be this slow again, is driving a lot of that. So the ability to be able to stay current is more and more difficult as the investment increases. And then with that, your the consumption of data. So if we look at asset allocators and asset managers, historically, asset managers have been the big consumers of data and they've been providing out to the asset allocators reporting and information. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing more now, and and there are a couple of factors driving this, we're seeing asset allocators being consumers of that data in much the same way. So there's a confluence there. And I think it's driven by, well, it's driven by a number of things, but two that I'll call out democratization of data, so the availability of that data and access to it is easier than it's historically been. Mm -hmm. Plus, we're seeing a a trend with certain allocators taking on more responsibility for managing their own assets, or at Mm -hmm. least providing greater and uh, more intimate oversight of their their managers. Yes. So again, driving a, a number of different challenges for all of the protagonists, ourselves, 
the asset allocators, the asset managers. Sure. And so it makes for an interesting time. Well, you know, it's interesting, Paul. I, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the book uh, called Value Migration by Adrian Slowatsky. And he talks about how value migrates across a value chain. And so over time, as customer needs evolve and so forth. And you certainly saw it in, in retail goods and consumer packaged goods, right? The retail, the big retailers got way more information power, what what you know, I used to call the virtual value chain. You know, they improve their virtual value chain. And so they can grab power back from Kraft and from Heinz and so forth. And you can see that and you see it again with Amazon. And so it sounds like you're saying in financial services, the virtual value chain, kind of what that information description of the assets is, is really changing in its character, its scale, and its power dynamics. Is that a fair? I, I think it is. I think, again, if we look back, say 40 years yeah the asset allocators were in a position where the asset managers were in short supply yes so to get access to quality asset management they were price takers so yes. they were at, at the the mercy if you if you like of the asset managers sure. i think that has changed completely now and the availability of asset managers has increased and has put some of the we're starting to see the the power dynamic move back to the allocators Uh, which accompanying their ability to be more interrogate, I suppose, to be able to interrogate the data better. Sure. They are holding more of that power over the asset managers by saying, look, you want our capital. You got to be able to prove to us that you are going to put it to the best use and deliver the best returns to us. And, you know, the definition of what that return is, is can it be just outperformance and growing the assets Mm -hmm. or are they uh, putting it into places where it's important to the asset allocator? So, and we'll talk a little bit later about ESG and and where all of that's going, because I think that's, that may be the next frontier in some of this. Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, what's happening to assets is the same that's happening to my eggs, you know, basically (laughs) where, where they've been and, you know, what are they doing and how are they treated? You know what I mean? And uh, yeah. And and the price, the price um, tag is high here from a, if you don't get this right, you know, we, yes. uh, there was a recent survey by Casey Quirk, who does some work in the consulting space, and they were saying that less than or, or right around 23% of fund managers mm-hmm. in the public market space are delivering excess returns, which I'll do the math for you, John. That means that, you know, close to 77% are not. Yes. That's a big number. And when they talk about the, you know, I mentioned the cost pressures, when they talk about the cost pressures, those that are underperforming, yes, the cost pressure and the reduction in their ability to charge is five times higher than those that are outperforming. So they really are feeling that pressure. And then the flip side is those that consistently outperform sure. will see 7% growth in revenue over, you know, in, on a, an annual basis in the coming years. So yeah. again, the, the stakes are high. And yes. uh, the combined with the ability for the allocators to have better information and to be able to look more deeply into what their managers are doing, uh, how they're doing it and how they're providing alpha. You know, it's not just about the return and what it looks like on the back end. They want to understand yeah. how did they do that and how did they apply skill to deliver that? Yeah. And it seems also that the so the, the, as you say, the IP, the intellectual value add and then. The other things, you know, whether it's transaction services or information access or whatever, those seem to be more commoditized or at least more competitive than they used to. Those all used to be kind of bundled together, you know, with the flow of 
the flow yeah. of the transactions, the data, the advice, all that other stuff. And now it seems like people are pulling apart different parts of that value proposition. Yeah, and I, I think one of the other aspects of the democratization applies to the investment management side. Because if what asset allocators are effectively buying is, let's call it alpha for now, there, there may be other reasons they engage with particular managers, but let's just focus on the performance piece. Yes. If we're able to democratize the asset manager's ability, so really what is their investment skill, and not whether they have the scale to deliver the all of those cost components, the, the transaction pieces, yes. then we even the playing field, level the playing field for the asset managers. So those that have true skill but don't have the scale can compete on the performance side. Yeah, no, very interesting. Yeah, I mean, it seems like that's happening in so many businesses. You know, I, I do think it's a derivative of this notion of computability. I mean, you see it happening not in all businesses, right? Cars are still very integrated with the OEM and all that other stuff. But, you know, you look at... For know, now, John. For now. I, I agree, by the way. We very unsuccessfully tried to get an OEM to open their platform back when they were a leader and, and say, look, well, you guys could be the... Anyway, I wasn't a good enough salesman to make that work inside. So anyway... the uh, time, John. Uh, <laughs> you may want to revisit that in the near term. Yeah, that's my that's my excuse. Anyway, yeah, so fascinating. And you're right in the middle of all this, right? And so you're saying, hey, look, we need a different kind of platform, whether it's Lego-like or modular or whatever language you want to use, that the old, you know, bureaucratic approach, hierarchical approach to data is going to be insufficient. It is. And I think this is, we've just done a survey of about yeah. 300, not about exactly 300 managers globally, but just the juxtaposition of, of these two numbers. So the 12% represents those managers that, um, I guess, admitted to having a formal research management platform. So how do they generate their ideas around where they they invest the, the capital? And the 73% represents those that would, would say the benefit of a repeatable process where their best ideas are reviewed and, and resurfaced continuously. So I put those two numbers together. We say 12% of people do this, 73% say it's valuable. Clearly, there's a disconnect. And yes. I think we that gap needs to close. And I would close that gap by increasing the 12%, not by shrinking the 73%. Yes. And well, we, do, we do expect that to continue. And we're, we're at a point where I think some of the lack of, you know, the, the, the reason for the 12% rather, is that the availability of, cap of technology and capabilities is only now starting to evolve. And yeah. historically, portfolio managers, asset managers may be the, uh, some of the biggest culprits of this. They live in spreadsheets. Sure. Uh, as good as spreadsheets are, and we, we've all benefited from them, sure. the ability to work across teams, to collaborate, to have good data, have a real digitized process yes. is limited. And, you know, you see this mental mosaic of a portfolio manager with his Excel spreadsheets, his email and his research notes all sitting on his desk. And while he's sitting there looking at it, he's feeling comfortable about what he's doing. But his yeah. ability to work across a team with his research analysts is, I'll say, difficult. And uh, if I were being unkind, I'd say impossible. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, and, and, and you and I both know Dan Bricklin, the co-inventor of the spreadsheet, mm -hmm. right? And if you talk to Dan... You know, he saw that coming. I mean, because he just did it. He just created VisiCalc because he was sick of doing 10-year projections as a Harvard Business School student. And yep. um, 
yeah, I was a Harvard Business School student. I wasn't that wasn't as bright as that. But anyway, you know, Dan, and then, but he totally understood this issue, right? He created what I think of as, you know, the beginning of Google Sheets, basically, which is, you know, he did social text and, you know, social calc and that idea of, you know, how do we create something where everybody can work on it together? But, you know, he's not an enterprise software guy. He's off doing other stuff now. But uh, Well, it's funny. One of the uh, expressions that I hear repeatedly as we talk to various participants in, in this space is that uh, term of tyranny of spreadsheets. Yes. So they, you know, they're opaque. They're, the data that's in them is good at a point in time, but any changes and all of those, those challenges. And it, it, it's surfaced again in that book, The Technologized Investor. And they spend a lot of time talking. Oh, okay. I haven't read it. Yeah. Well, I, I was hooked because on the first page of the book, they talk about Ku Cullen, the mythical Irish warrior. So oh, straight away, they okay. grab me and I'm in. But they talk a lot about the, the tyranny of spreadsheets. And one of the examples that I like coming back to just because it's, it's had some maturity now is Salesforce. You know, yes. Salesforce as a capability going back 10 years ago, relationship management and sales teams were living in spreadsheets and yes. their ability to collaborate was again, nigh on impossible. Sure. Uh, you know, Salesforce gives everyone the same single pane of glass. We're all working with the same understanding of what the client is or the. Yes prospect is and, and what's been happening with that relationship. So everyone is current, everyone is up to speed. Phone rings from that client, the person sitting there on the phone is as intelligent as the last person that talked to them yes. weeks, two weeks ago. And, and that makes for a very different relationship. And that yeah. is all data driven. Yeah. And, and and as you and I have discussed, even with some of the military leaders at some of these events that you and I participated in, you know, they talk about that shared information environment. And that's that is a that's so foundational to the agile organization, right? And to, I mean, they come out from a warfighting standpoint, but you know that what they call it, the edge-based organization, right? That ability to synchronize around the problem, to have similar status, and and to your point, it creates a fantastic customer experience. Yeah, some of the challenges today we see without that flow of data or the digitized process, there's a you know lack of a feedback loop. Yeah, uh, the inability to move beyond anecdotal evidence for anything in, in particular. So uh, I did have a, a conversation with a portfolio manager not too long ago, and I asked him the question. I said, you sit in front of uh, an investment committee of one of your investors and they ask you why you or how you added value to the portfolio that month. Right. And I, I said, what's your process? And he said, well, I'll walk them through what we do. And I said, anecdotally, he goes, yeah. I said, what if they really push for data? Right. Goes, well, that, that's a lot more work. We we end up sending research analysts and portfolio managers away to reconstruct why we did what we did and how we did it and how that uh, resulted in value to the client. I said, well, that doesn't seem like a good use of what I can only imagine are highly highly paid resources. And he laughed. That no, not really. Yeah, no, that's the that's the evolution. Well, that's that's why they have you doing what you're doing, Paul. I think right. Well, I'm, I, it's, I think it's part of the reason why I'm enjoying it. And, and you touched on this uh, concept of, of the military. And this is, I'll say stolen, um, well, let's yes. say borrowed from uh, General McChrystal's book, Team of Teams. Sure. You know, one of the, the things that he, and certainly the thing that resonated most with me in the book was he makes a distinction between complicated and complex. Mm -hmm. uh, I find that most people use those two words as synonyms. And yes. uh, his distinction is complicated problems have solutions that you can map out and, and walk through. Complex problems 
oftentimes represent as complicated problems, but then something changes and suddenly your step-by-step -step process is no longer applicable. I think we've all heard that expression, she's playing chess while everyone's playing checkers. Right. I love that Annie Duke in her book, Thinking in Bets, says chess is easy. You know, there's predefined moves that you if sure. played enough chess, you can walk through to uh, checkmate. Just poker is difficult because with every turn of a card, the whole yeah. world changes. Yeah. Um, now that may be overstating the complexities of, of poker. Yes. He's really representing an org structure, but that org structure was driven out of the need for data and the ability to respond quickly to data. So, you know, the flow of information, they would send in a, a squad to a safe house for Al Qaeda. Uh -huh. But that information was collect collected, delivered through the chain, through the various channels, went up and came back down and someone then had to act on it, it was too old. And that too old could be hours, days, weeks. Okay, how can we move that data more quickly? Yes. Uh, I've heard somebody in that space describe it, them trying to be more like Al-Qaeda in how mm -hmm. they involve information and the, the agility sure. and speed with which they could work, which, frankly, the first time I'd heard somebody, I heard somebody say that, it, it jolted me a little bit. Yes. Uh, but perfectly understandable. Yeah. I mean, small teams doing incredible impact, you know. Said Margaret Mead, right? Never underestimate the power of a small number of people to make significant change. Oftentimes, yeah. it's the only thing that does. Especially when you add cell phones and RPGs, right? Yeah. The, That's it. And that, was a, and that was a lot of what they talked about. Yeah. Now, it's fascinating. The asymmetry of power. We have an interesting question from Chuck Mackey. He's saying, your 12%, 73% mirrors a recent global survey that found that AI and ML is important to the future of the enterprise. Most say it's important, fewer delivering results. One important point, initial ROI is low. It will always be low. How do you address that conundrum? You won't get immediate returns, but you also won't be around long if you don't get going. Well, I think the answer is in the question, right? It's getting people to understand that this is an upfront investment. I do find, however, though, some of those results are quick to deliver and generating those small victories early on starts to generate a lot more interest and acceptance that this is the, the right way to go. But I, I think that last piece of the question is really the answer. It's getting people to realize that if you don't make this investment, it won't matter because uh, you won't be around to uh, suffer the, the results of it or benefit from the, the gains. It's interesting, Paul. The, the one thing, Chuck, I would say is that there's an assertion in here that the ROI will always remain low. I would say I'm not sure that's right. And one of the things actually back in our very first Growth Innovator series, I was on with Rob Spivey. And the if you look at how long research takes to pay off in most companies, in most companies, it's five years. In technology companies, it's four years. In pharma, it's 11 years that the value of research goes. And we also did a quick survey. Most people inside, when they do an ROI on an innovation or investment, usually has a three-year or less window. Well, what I think people put together, it's going to take a long time and I can't measure it. And I, I say that's not true, that, that executives, when they're working on the business, not in the business, so when they're looking at the next thing, or reinventing the business while running this business or in-flight missile maintenance, whatever analogy you want to use, right? That you have a responsibility to invest on the longer term horizon for most businesses, five years, hold people accountable for progress, but not for the full ROI. And by the way, 
in Amazon, any manager, executive, or whatever can make a case for an investment, and their time window is five years, which ha- happens to be empirically correct in terms of the, the the payoff. So, so Chuck, I would I would suggest that yes, ROI probably over a longer time period still hold, have to hold people accountable. And if you're interested, the, the the very first growth innovators goes through it as as to why that's the case, how that works, and we have it's a passion of mine because I, I really I really believe we have to align executive incentives. I think a large consulting company that begins with M is doing people a lot of disservice in their three horizon stuff. So I know you can't measure this stuff out here. You can measure it, but you got to measure it over the right time frame. Yeah, anyway. John, can I just two two things? One, I'll, I'll start with the Amazon. I think Amazon is an interesting case study because that you know, arguably is one of the more data heavy organizations in the world. Maybe it's not all that arguable, but I love the quote from Bezos when he said, look, if the data and the narrative don't align, the data is usually wrong. The narrative is right. You're just measuring the wrong stuff. And just to put that together with your example, if they are measuring over three years, then you will get into that cycle of, well, the ROI is bad, the ROI is bad, the ROI is bad, versus, well, okay, the ROI is going to be really good. You're just not being patient enough. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the narrative will play that out. Um, so I, I think it's, it is interesting, but I also think your, the data, when you look at some of your time horizons and I'll pick on pharma, just given where we've been the last 14 months. Yes. Um, I don't know this to be true, but I'm going to suggest that 11 years will likely shrink given some of the speed with which. Sure. So when we start to look back at those historical numbers, we are going to see a compression of value return. Oh, I totally think that's true. And then if you start going from a game theoretic perspective, it gets really interesting, right? Because if you're only playing a medium and short term game and I'm willing to play that plus the long term game and there's value in the quote unquote long term investments, it, it, the portfolio becomes interesting. Uh, and that, the other thing, Paul, is I think when you see this great movement toward privatization, great wealth creation, right? Over $100 trillion getting created over the past decade that's seeking return. In general, a privatization of the economy in general. And then I think you're going to have very interesting things, right? Because private companies can make broad choices about short versus long term and so forth. You know, are you the Rothschilds or are you um, Wayne Heisenga, right? You know, kind of where are you? Well, yeah, it's funny. One of the things that has come up as we've looked at this is clearly there's been, when I talk about democratization of data, one of the places we've seen that most pronounced is the availability of information on public markets. You know, I think it's Charlie Munger tells the story of having to go to his local library just to get information on companies and being willing to do that and willing to sit through it. And that's one of the things that gave him his advantage early on. Clearly, you if you've got a laptop or a phone, you can get access to every bit as much information as, as uh, the public library used to hold. So clearly there's no real information advantage there. And it's more around what do you get from the information that is available. In the private market space, we're still seeing that information gap. And those that can truly understand the underlying information will drive more success for them in the private markets. And I think that's where you're going to see some of that arbitrage and, and the ability to generate alpha in the investment side is more in that private market space. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so interesting. And all the platform things that are available to to make that happen, right? The power of IP. So as we as we think about sorry, as we think about fintech, well, you're look, you're right in the middle of 
I mean, if you step back and you look at the global economy for a minute, you say, okay, well, what's really huge, right? Obviously healthcare, right? And in all its flavors, obviously food and like what's happening in food and water and inputs and so forth. Financial services. I mean, my goodness. I mean, financial services is just alive with innovation and huge valuations, you know, I mean, billions of dollars for, you know, little read card reader functionality. I mean, uh, how do you, you know, I mean, you're at a venerated institution and, you know, venerated institutions. I used to work for one, Harvard, you know, and there's an old joke in academia, you know, there's a faculty member, there's a faculty meeting and he was so frustrated with the speed of decisions. He decided to commit suicide. So he went out and stood in front of a glacier, you know, that was before global warming, right? So how do you manage that? I mean, it must be, as my friend Paramount would say, you know, you've got one foot in the speedboat, one foot on the barge. Well, you know, it is funny you say that because I would say, you know, as much as there's an explosion of fintech firms focused on what we're doing, we are still, I would suggest, underserved by technology or certainly the application of technology. Mm -hmm. And we've been using the, you know, for those of you familiar with Michael Lewis's book, Moneyball, or I suppose more importantly, Brad Pitt's appearances uh, in Moneyball, the movie, <laughs> that measuring of what athletes do. Now, obviously, baseball, football are all multi-billion dollar enterprises. So there's a reason to apply the level of technology. But if you think about the the way that they apply data to what they do, you know, whether it's I'll say John is a, a Massachusetts native, although he's in Tampa now. Tom Brady, he looks at film and data on a Monday morning and it shows him where, you know, his arm slot was when he you know, threw one of his passes. They sure. break it down to that level of detail mm-hmm. for us not to apply some of the same thought process, some of the same tools, some of the same data analytics to retirement assets or uh, endowment assets that are so valuable to so much so much of the population yes i mean that is reckless if we're not doing that so i I think we've got a i would say even a moral obligation Uh, i had an old boss that said when you know someone would say it's not a matter of life and death what we do and he said that is true but if we do our job well the amount sorry that part of life right before death will be a lot more comfortable for a lot more people (laughs) And at the time, I thought he was being flippant. The more I think about it, it's true. You know, we've we have we're more and more reliant on the markets to drive retirement assets. So people move certainly in the private sector, move out of defined benefit plans into defined contribution. They are more heavily reliant on the markets to deliver and good investment decisions to deliver a comfortable retirement. So, Paul, as, as you look at, I mean, there are, I'm sure there are a number of folks in our audience here who are either innovators trying to get large organizations to move, working at small organizations trying to sell into large organizations, or sitting in large organizations trying to get innovation to happen. You've lived in that cauldron in different flavors, and you're certainly right in the middle of it right now. How do you think about that? How do you, you know, the old, oh, come on, the guy who took over IBM used to be at, anyway, when elephants learned to dance, when yeah. he went, yeah. How do you make the elephant dance? Or is that how you think about it? So uh, I suppose Lou Gerstner. Uh, Thank you. It's, I would say there's been a, a, a shift on, and I'll speak just for us here at Northern. There's been a significant shift away from the always build capability. You know? yes. So historically we've, 
anything that we've needed to do to support clients, we've gone and built. We, I would say, have gotten smarter about that. So build by partner is a real discussion. And I, I think more often than not, build is, uh, is losing out to buy our partner. Mm-hmm. And if I think in terms of fintech, that presents more opportunities for fintech organizations to partner with, to work with large institutions. You know, mm-hmm. There are certain things that we're doing today that given enough time and money, we mm-hmm. could probably build out ourselves. The problem with that is twofold. One, I don't think we're always necessarily the people best uh, equipped to do that. And you very rarely are given enough time and money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we've uh, an example here with a, a firm that we're, we made a minority investment in uh, beginning this year that we feel has a capability that is not widely available in the market. We actually, we truly think their direct competitors are uh, Excel spreadsheets and email sitting in the portfolio manager's own shop. Mm-hmm. Uh, they built a platform that I think for most portfolio managers who are looking at the public markets and looking to make investments and doing research and risk analysis, they have that single pane of glass that they can sit and drive all day. And that was it for us, a good example of a, you know, a fintech firm we've acquired a, an interest in that will support our clients. And there's a combination of their capability plus our data. And you, know, you, you refer to Northern Trust as an institution that's well trusted. That helps with the conversation. So mm-hmm. the fintechs benefit, you know, the name above the door, so to speak. And we've yes. seen real examples of that. The firm that I'm referring to is uh, goes by EDS or Equity Data Science. They, in the last three and a half months, we've had 70 discussions with prospective clients, existing clients, centers of influence in the marketplace, yes. all driven by their capability paired up with Northern Trust as an organization that mm-hmm. is a well-respected one, but also has uh, has a lot of the data that that firm would uh, would consume. So it's really taking your relationship capital and mar- marrying it with their risk capital and their technology capital and and, and making a making a yeah and looking at us as sort of a, a platform um, yeah. you know, on which and through which our clients can execute their strategy yep. but not limiting that platform to either services or, or technologies that we own. I guess I'm not completely sold on this analogy yet but if you look at Android and, and Apple, it's yes. you know they that is the platform. Obviously, one a little bit more closed than the other, but that platform that we can wrap around all of these different capabilities and yes. create that network of capabilities that, positioned the right way, can provide clients with the suite of solutions that they need to execute their strategy today and, frankly, more importantly, as they move forward. Because you know we we talked a little bit about the cost of of staying current on technology, it's very difficult for everybody to do that. And to have somebody that can bring that level of scale and partner with the right fintech firms that provide the capabilities in either in part or in whole across different uh, requirements. And it does change what we do. You know, Paul, I, I serve on the board of a promotional price company by the name of Gemline. One of my other board members, a guy named John Starr, and John is a serial entrepreneur. And one of the things he he has a very interesting business in Kansas City where he sells a lot of the stuff that people who run slaughterhouses need, you know, the the clothing, the bins, the 
the wrapping machines and so forth. And in the words of my Polish grandmother, John does okay in this country, you know, and, um, Anyway, I, he had me laughing the other day. He's talking about his son, who's a data scientist. And I said, so, John, you're going to bring him into the business? He goes, I don't think I can afford him. And, and so it's just a setup for the question of how do you think about talent, Paul, in this area? I mean, you know, and is it aqua hires? Where do you look? How do you think about it? And then I'd like to turn, when we have time, to the question of ESG, which you mentioned, which is huge. And, and I think it was also related to the talent question myself. Yeah, it is. I, and I think talent is going to be a challenge. I was talking to someone earlier this week and my wife used to be a high school uh, guidance counselor. So uh, she periodically would ask me to come in and speak to high school juniors and seniors about careers and so on. And I remember 20 years ago, I was telling them all to get into some kind of risk management because you had the opportunity to write your own check as everyone was looking at the fallout from global financial crisis and other places and how they manage that risk. If I had the opportunity to stand in front of a group of 17 and 18 year olds today, it would be two things. Stay in the math and the sciences and look at careers in data science or data engineering uh, as well. I, I just think that is the way forward. You know, I mentioned to you earlier, John, that my son is in a, an advanced math class in, in middle school and he was toying with the idea of going back to quote unquote regular math. And I don't generally put my foot down a lot with him on things like that, but I said, absolutely not. I said, you will be doing yourself a disservice for your future. If at some point you don't use math, that, that's okay. But you will not be quitting now because there's so much of what I see on a day in, day out basis that is heavily reliant on data science. I think the talent is going to be, we have to produce more of this. We have to go where the talent is. And as an industry, we need to make ourselves a destination of choice. And if we just, if we were to remain a stodgy old bank or stodgy old financial services, nobody's going to come work here. They're all going to go work for a fintech and they'll do it for pennies on the dollar if they're doing something interesting. Yes. And we have to be competitive in that space. Plus then we have to partner with the firms that are going to do things that are exciting. So we can tap into that talent, even if we're not directly uh, developing it ourselves. But I do think it's it's a challenge that the industry, actually, I don't think it's restricted to financial services. I think industries broadly have to be able to develop that talent. And I'll look to this, some of the educational institutions. They have to promote this. Uh, and there are a couple here. I know Michigan State seems to hold this uh, discipline pretty high. And uh, mm -hmm. anyone trying to get into this space is, uh, is trying to get into Michigan State as one place. I don't have any association with that university. It's just that uh, they seem to come up every now and then as a haven of data science. Fascinating. And uh, Paul, start if you go mention a little bit, like what? How do you think about this whole ESG movement? You had said that you think it's a big issue. First of all, if you could just set the context for our, for our audience a bit, just kind of how do you think about it? What do you mean by it? How does Northern Trust think about it? Why do you think it's an issue? And and, and what are the dynamics? Yeah, so ESG, you know, environmental, social governance yes. criteria. If you go back even as recently as five years ago, I would have said it was an afterthought might be too much, but it was a screening process. It was a filter that was put on. Today, it is core to what investors are looking for, what investment managers are doing. Regulators, you know, our own administration is placing a, a high priority on it. The In Europe, we just had the, the launch of the sustainability regulation 
uh, which is fascinating to me. I'm looking at a one of the requirements of, of that alone, and one of the firms that produced their analysis of scope one, scope two, scope three, and scope three is really indirect use of their uh, products. They think make up 93% of their reporting requirements for their ESG regulatory reporting. So 93% of their reporting requirements are based on things that their consumers or their consumers are doing with their product. Um, and the availability and accessibility of that data is, I'm only starting to try and wrap my head around it. But it's, it's going to be core because I, I think there's a, a demographic shift. A lot of the millennials and so on and, and Gen Z are looking at their impact on the world. So mm-hmm. environmental, social governance, and then our own environment. You know, we've, we look at what's happening over the last year from obviously COVID, but then the uh, social movements around Black Lives Matter, Me Too, they are creating more awareness and uh, investors, firms are all trying to figure out what is it that we should be doing and how can we influence uh, outcomes. And we've had organizations that, you know, non-governmental or, or quasi-governmental organizations looking at how we're going to make a difference, climate change. Right. Um, I'm seeing more now on climate change where historically I would have seen that as part of the E, as in environmental. We're seeing it now starting to be called out as a fourth leg of a, I suppose it's no longer a stool if it has four legs, it's a chair, becoming a, a focus in and of itself. And I'm just, I am really fascinated as to where this goes, because it, it's not a fad. I, I don't believe that for a moment, but it will be interesting to see both from a regulator, regulatory requirements, the allocators of capital, their demands that are placed yes. in this space will drive a lot of what happens. And I just, I think there are a number of unknowns that need to be resolved before we can make any real headway in this space. Mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, who's the arbiter of what is good ESG practices? You know, yes. The UN has its you know, principles for responsible investment. SASB actually just merged with another entity into uh, value. I'm blanking on the, the name of the new organization. But who ultimately decides what is good ESG? Uh, right. And then what, is, you know, what are the data that and the availability of that data to support ESG practices and, and define yes. what is successful ESG. And then the last one for me that I, I've not heard a lot of talk about, frankly, I may just be making this up. I don't, it may never be an issue, but is the ESG constant over time and even constant over short time, like on an annual basis? Mm-hmm. Does G and as in the governance in particular around corporate governance, does yes. that get a higher weighting at quarter end as, as companies start to produce their results? Does the S, as in the social implications, does that get a higher weighting you know, over the last year? You know, we saw what happened to George Floyd and all of what came out of that. Yes. Does S become he- more heavily weighted in that during that period? Or should it be constant to give people the, the right frame of reference on a, an ongoing basis? Very early on, but it is going to play and continue. Sorry, it already is, but it's going to play an increasing role in how we look at the world. Yeah, and I think it's so interesting. I mean, when you look at, you know, some of these movements you say are very much about transparency and sharing of power and 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 oversight and so forth. And then you have other movements like what uh, Facebook did with its two kinds of stock, you know, AB stock and the control, you know, even, you know, being separated very distinctly from ownership and Google as well. 
those, you know, kind of remind you about the turn of the century thing, kind of the way the, you know, way Ford went out, you know, and, yep. and so forth. This is kind of, you know, it's the kind of libertarian movement in Silicon Valley reminds one of the robber barons of old and, you know, the prosthetic and the spirit of capitalism. If you've read that book by Weber, you know, Weber made the point that the, the, uh, the, the, the robber barons, some of them live by the notion that uh, I'm wealthy because I'm holy and I'm holy because I'm wealthy. You know, and so it's it's interesting. Libertarianism. To uh, bastardize a phrase, one man's robber baron is another man's innovator. Absolutely true. But the governance thing gets very interesting because as I'm a common shareholder of both Facebook and Google, and I don't have much say in anything. Yeah, I, I'm reminded, and I think I, I picked this expression up at an exchange event where an individual talking about innovation said, well, first things first, shoot all the lawyers. Hi. And then, I this boy's a lawyer. <laughs> and, then, and then do the same to the finance people. At some point, you'll have to bring them back, but they will stifle innovation up front. And I get, you know, in every comment, there is a, a, a grain of truth. But I, I do think there's a, a governance piece of this that will not go away. And having the right people in, engaged up front will determine whether we're successful over the long run. And to avoid, to ignore the risk and the compliance piece, I, I think you're setting yourself up for failure and, and longer term problems. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, it's going to be a pressing thing, I think. And as we, especially as we bump up to certain limitations of our society and planet. John, um, just seeing a comment from, from Chuck there on, and talks about citizen data scientists. I, I yes. think that that will be a key component of all of this, whether it's ESG related or, or just more broadly, as sure. make the capabilities more accessible. But also we are getting a, a demographic shift where we have more digital natives, not just in the workplace, but I, I think that's been a trend for a while. It's in leadership roles. So making decisions around the application and the use of data. And again, I always go back to the uh, Gary Kasparov, you know, so he was uh, beaten by Deep Blue and his yes. chess match. And, you know, he could have gone one of two ways. He could have curled up in a ball or as he has done, which has come out and said, AI augmented intelligence so right. the human and the machine working together yes uh, i think we have more people coming into the workforce and coming into leadership positions that are very comfortable in that space and that's going to make a big difference yeah oh i, I think so and i think it's going to be an interesting combination of discovery and science and politicization of data there's a friend of mine who wrote a book ages ago called data wars which documented how the creation of macro models in their use in California politics back in the 80s. You know, I have my macro model, you have your macro model, I'm pushing my policy things. I think we're going to see that and we're going to see the extension of science. So, you know, I mean, it's going to kind of be at least those two, those two venues. And just for the record, I just want to say my son is a prosecutor, so he's not, he puts bad guys in jail. So he's one of the good lawyers. Is that what you're suggesting? Uh, I, that's what they tell me. Anyway, I went in front of a judge for a traffic thing and, and uh, he said, hey, your son beat me in court a couple of times. He's a great lawyer. One of my proud father moments. Anyway, Paul, I just want to give you an opportunity to, before I hop into um, my rest of the story and introduction for next week. Uh, what What is the one thing you think our audience, given the, the environment that we're in and all the complexities we've talked about, should keep in mind as leaders of organizations? I think it's that it's that these are complex times and the availability of information um, is, is going to be one key, but also understanding what you know and what you don't know. 
you know, that Simon Sinek where he tells a story about the inauguration of a president and he sets the stage and he leaves out one piece of, you know, so he sets the stage of a 43 year old Catholic standing beside a general who had just served his country in a war being in, inaugurated. Uh, straight away, your mind jumps to JFK. And then he adds in one last piece of data, which is it's Germany and it's 1933. Completely different. And, you know, most people would argue that those two individuals could not be more different. That to me is a challenge. We're living in complex times. We do have a lot of data, but we all mm-hmm. need to be aware of what we do know, don't know. And uh, if there's any one individual that's calling all the shots and making all the decisions, I would hate to be on the other end of that because uh, yeah. this is a, these are challenging times for us all. Well, thank you, Paul. I just want to um, thank you on behalf of the audience. I know you're busy as can be, and and it's it's always such a treat to talk to you. So I feel I feel blessed that we have a little opportunity to talk. And for those of you who are interested, certainly you know we continue the growth innovator series, and you know Paul is going to continue to innovate in that area. So please join our discussion. Appreciate the invitation. It was lovely to have you. Thank you, Paul. I just wanted, to, in terms of the rest of the story, if you go back, we're talking about financial services and 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 so forth, and the the creation of value. If you go back to the Code of Hammurabi, which, at least in the Western tradition, Western Eastern tradition, is one of the first, if not the first, uh, kind of sets of laws and so forth. You know, the concern for financial innovation then was there, and Law Number Eighty Eight actually outlines the interest rate, the maximum interest rate. So if a merchant lends graded interest of one GUR, he shall receive 100 SILA as interest, which turns out to be 33%. So the good news is that in the growth of financial services, with the exception of certain credit cards and leg breakers, 33% is a very high number and a lot higher than we have to pay. So just want that in the long arc of history, it seems like financial services is going to be a better deal. So thanks all for joining and hope to see you again. That's it for this episode. For more information and advice on how to become a growth innovator in your own organization, visit us at manifold.group. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you use. Thanks as always for listening. We will see you next time. 